You may be seated. Well, good morning. Make sure you have your uh, children's bulletins. Boys and girls, I don't have one with me. I believe it's like purplish today. Make sure you have that. You have a translation in there just for you. And a place you can ask us questions as well. And then for the rest of you, again, out of habit, you might be turning to Ecclesiastes. Don't do that. We're done with Ecclesiastes. This morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 1, uh, looking at verses 57 through 79, a great uh, story about John the Baptist and his coming before our Lord. Before we go uh, to God's Word, let's go together in prayer. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we do come uh, before you praising your name for your great grace you have given us in Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that you have received us as sinners and you have forgiven us through Christ when we have confessed faith in him so we can come before you as holy and righteous. And now you come inviting us to feed us on your word. And so, Lord, we ask that we would eat heartily. We ask, Spirit, that you would do your work of applying this to our lives. And we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, to get us into the mindset of where we're going to go today, I have to confess that I love heist movies. You know, the kind of movies where there's a big plan, like Ocean's Eleven, the the new one that came out, you know, in the early 2000s. I've seen the original with Frank Sinatra. I've got to tell you, it's terrible. The one in the 90s was actually really good. You know, it's the kind of idea, or maybe like the Italian job, where there's this big, intricate plan, and you as an audience, you don't know the whole plan, and so you see these things happening, and you think something unexpected happens, it's going to mess up the plan, but they actually knew that was going to happen, and so they planned for it, and it all comes together in the end. It's just this great story. I love movies like that, how it all comes together in the end. It's just great, that, that well-planned-out scheme. I love those kind of movies. And that is very much what our text is about this morning, this well-planned-out scheme. Last week, we saw how in the, the hope that we have in the power of the gospel, how it can change nations. We saw that no matter what you may think about the current state of America, ancient Rome was far worse morally, politically, spiritually than America may or may not be today. And yet through 12 ordinary guys preaching the weakness of a baby and the foolishness of a cross, that Roman culture was destroyed and reborn as the Western culture that we appreciate so much of today. And so the question we are asking this Advent is this, do we believe that the gospel could do that again? Do we have that kind of hope? I I think there's more than 12 Christians in America at last count. I think there's more than 12 Christians in the room, so so we've got the numbers. The question is, do we have the belief, the confidence, the hope in the gospel? This Christmas season, the question we're asking ourselves is, do we have hope in the power of God unto salvation? That's where our text is going to take us uh, this morning. It's been silence from the prophets for about 400 years or so at this point. If you remember the story we're going to get into in a second, Zechariah, he encounters an angel in the temple when he's doing his normal priestly work. He's told that the answer to his prayers has come. He questions it because it's too good to be true, and so he is struck mute. And now our story picks up. Uh, We're going to read this text. It's chapter 1, verses 57 through 79. But 
I'm going to do it a little differently. You may have noticed the order's kind of messed up in your bulletin. We're going to read it chronologically as it actually happened, so you may want to follow along in your bulletin. The slides are also the same. I normally wouldn't tell you not to look at your own Bibles, but you might get confused. So this is God's Word, Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 79. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and he wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And now we're going to jump to verse 68. This is what he actually says at this point. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. And then back to verse 65, which kind of sums it up. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea, and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. This is God's word. And so we're looking at hope this Christmas season. What I want you to get from this sermon today, I kind of want to give it to you in a quick theme sentence. Maybe you can remember this over lunch when you're talking about the sermon or help your kids remember later in private worship. It's this. We have hope because God has planned His work and is working His plan. We have hope because God has planned His work and is working His plans. What we're going to see is that God has these amazing promises for us. And that promise is centered around the coming of Jesus Christ. And so because God has promised that we can have hope. So let's jump right in. Let's look at God's working plan. What's going on here? So this story opens at an ordinary circumcision Family and friends have gathered. You know, the little ones are there. This whole community is together. Everybody knows that Zechariah kind of has his issues because of stress at work. He hadn't been able to talk for like nine months. Hopefully he's going to get over that soon. And when Elizabeth tries to name the child, because this is when it happens at the circumcision, she tries to name him John like she's supposed to. All these friends and family gathered around basically say to her, hey, that's not how we do it around here. Firstborn son's junior. His name's Zechariah. And she says, no, it's John. And so they go after mute Zechariah. And I love how the 
humor here. You know, there can be humor in the Bible. I love how there's humor here because the text says he struck mute. And yet they apparently think he's deaf because they start making signs to him, right? Did you catch that? It's like, <laughs> he's like, I can hear you. I just can't respond, right? So he, they, they start playing charades or something. And he gets a tablet and he writes, actually, literally, he writes, John is his name. Because that's what the angel told him. He says John is his name because that's what the angel gave him that name nine months ago. He's already been named. And as soon as he writes that down, Zechariah can talk. Note, he gets his voice back, not at John's birth. He gets his voice back at the naming of John. Once Zechariah shows that he believes and therefore he obeys, he gets his voice back, just like God promises. And so the first thing Zechariah says here is not to his wife. She does not get to hear him say how beautiful she was when she was pregnant. She never got to hear his heart when he spoke to his unborn child and spoke about his unborn child. She never heard him laugh at that tumbling belly when foots and hands were coming out at different stages. She never got to hear him talk to her stomach which even big, tough, macho guys always do, in secret, of course. Now, his first words about the pregnancy, his first words about the birth are Holy Spirit-inspired praise to God for his planned-out promise about what role this child is to have. And so it's at this point, then, that he, in amazement, he utters, like we read at verses 68 through 79, now, I want to make sure you don't read this in a vacuum. So often we come to Scripture very sterile and we treat it like it's some, you know, this is a very religious book, so I have to read it very religiously and rigidly. That's not how Scripture is. So I want you to understand his life, what's going on here, so this text will get in, into your heart. And here's what I mean. For some of you, this is a tough time of year. Life's maybe not going your way. It's not how you planned Maybe at Christmas dinner this year there's going to be an empty chair that you really wish wasn't empty. Maybe you're not really achieving what our culture says is the dream. And this Christmas stuff, if you're really candid, just makes you feel worse. You dread this time of year. Well, if that's you, this passage is for you. Look at Zechariah and Elizabeth. Specifically, look with me at verse 58, how it describes them. What happens? They're coming here at the birth of this child. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord, what? Had shown great mercy to her. That's a weird way to describe having a child. But you see, in that culture, as a woman, her only real value was in having sons. She had felt like a worthless woman her entire adult life. Remember, she was an old woman by this point. She had felt like a failure her entire adult life. She had felt worthless. Zechariah, as any man at that time, had dreams of a big family full of sons, lots of boys. It was their version of the White House and picket fence. That's what every man wanted. And so their barrenness, as it's described earlier, was a sore spot. It was life's greatest disappointment. You know, Nikki and I have five children at this point, and many of you know this story, but before we had Shaley, we were told repeatedly by several doctors, I, I kept firing them because that was the wrong answer, but we were told we would never have kids. And for a long time, it looked as if they were right. I mean, and that, that reality kind of formed the background to our whole life for the, very, for the first several years we were married. 
I mean, behind every moment of happiness was this kind of subtle despair. It was kind of like a cold presence that just sapped away every moment of joy. And it just kind of left our hearts really kind of like our nursery, just, just empty. That was Zechariah and Elizabeth's life, but even more so. That's why he just couldn't believe it was true when the angel came to him and said, you're going to have a son. It was just too good to be true. And so he asks for a sign, and the angel strikes him mute. I've always had trouble reading this passage at Christmas time or whenever because, I mean, it seems like Zechariah's doubt is reasonable, doesn't it? I mean, is God so much of a taskmaster? Is he so much of an ogre that he strikes an old man mute for doubting that he and his old wife could conceive and have a child they've never had before? Is God really that mean? How dare you question me? Silence, peasant. Is that, is that, is that the picture you're supposed to take from this? See, but I believe what we're supposed to look at as we read this whole story is that God struck Zechariah for his good not for punishment. He struck Zechariah to teach him during the pregnancy. He had lots of time to think, lots of time to pray, and lots of time to let go of his doubt and his pain and his disappointment. God disciplined him in a way that taught him to trust him. See, this is a hard time of year for you. You need to recognize that this is something God often does. He uses the hard experiences of suffering to teach us to trust Him. See, we have to have Him do that to us, especially we modern Christians, because we begin to equate God's love with our success or our lack of struggle. Things are going well in my life. I have a good life, therefore God loves me. I'm living the American dream because God loves me. God wants me to be happy and to be wealthy and to be healthy. But when those things start to falter, maybe when the America that you know and love and grew up with is kind of hard to find today, when there's economic struggles, when elections seem to be giving us bad leaders or not really leaders at all, we have a tendency to think that God doesn't love us as much as he did when things were going well, don't we? And so what God does to help us out is sometimes he takes those things away so that we can focus back on him and what he can give. Because so often we're the spoiled child who, when the parent comes back on the, from the business trip, says, Mommy, what'd you bring me? Instead of, I'm so glad you're home. See, you know why God does this to us? Because he's not Pavlov. Remember Pavlov from your high school psychology? Remember Pavlov, right? He rings the bell, feeds the dog. Rings the bell, feeds the dogs. Rings the bell, feeds the dogs. Then he stops and rings the bell, doesn't feed them, but they start salivating. And he goes, ah, psychology has happened. And, starts, and it takes notes, right? And we all learn that. It's conditioned response. Well, guess what? God is not Pavlov. He doesn't want to ring a bell and have a bunch of religious people jump through hoops. He's not interested in behavior modification. He's not interested in, okay, I'll bless you. If you're good, be good. He doesn't want a bunch of people doing the other thing either, trying to manipulate him with good behavior. If we're good enough, maybe God will bless us. 
See, God is interested in our hearts, not all this external religious stuff. He wants us to obey him. He cares about obedience, but he wants us to do it not out of fear, not out of an attempt to manipulate him into giving us good things, but out of appreciation for his grace, out of the fact that he is God and we are his people, therefore we walk in his ways. That's a heart condition that he is trying to cultivate in our lives. See, Zechariah gets that now. After a lifetime of disappointment, a man in that culture with no sons was, was, was talked about, was looked down upon, was snickered about behind his back. After a life of disappointment, after nine months of silence, he sees that God has worked for his good. And so he opens his mouth and he praises God for the great plan of grace and salvation. The man whose last words were, how can this be, now praises God for his amazing work of grace. See, you can't read this and not sense how planned out this all is. That's why there's hope, because God has a plan. Our sin, our hopelessness, our helplessness is not a surprise to Him. No, He has already set in place the means to set us free. Look with me at verse 68. What is the first thing Zechariah says? He says, what God has visited and redeemed His people. Literally, it's he's checked on and rescued his people. Zechariah's not looking at Jesus Christ on the cross here, folks. He's not even looking at baby Jesus. Remember that. He's holding John the Baptist in his arms, and he's saying, Redemption's done! What? That's not right. He needs to go back and take a theology class, right? See, Zechariah has no doubt now that God will finish what he started. God's promises are so sure. They're such a done deal that he's like, it's here. It's over. Redemption's accomplished because this is here. My son is here. God's people have been set free. That's what redeemed there actually means. It means to rescue, to set free, to liberate. You know, we don't make a big deal in church about, about 4th of July because Christmas is our Independence Day. So let freedom ring when you sing Christmas hymns. Because it's about God has come and set his people free. And so how will God rescue his people? Where does this freedom come from? Those are some big claims. What's going on here? Well, I want to look at an uh, ancient pastor who said this better than I could. This is a pastor, a monk from about 700 A.D. Here's what he says about this. He says, you know, he redeemed his people by giving us freedom at the price of his own blood. We who had been sold into the slavery of sin and were committed to serving the ancient enemy. And look at that. Think about that. We were committed to serving his enemies. It's not that we accidentally, we liked it, we loved it, we couldn't get enough of evil. And God sends his son to redeem us by dying for us and to take us out of there and say, you are now free. Zechariah believes that promise he hasn't even seen jesus he doesn't even know that jesus is, has been conceived yet but he sees his son he believes the angel says your son is going to be the one who goes before the messiah and he says here's my boy redemption's here hallelujah so you know why i quote old guys like this by the way because we have an ancient faith and i want to remind you of that 
that our ancient faith has given answers to humanity for thousands of years, and it can meet your deepest needs today. So this may be new to you, but it is not new. It's deep, old, and significant. And this new, old promise is that God would set his people free. God would show his power and mercy. It's a huge promise. And specifically, what is the promise? Look with me at verse 71. What does he say? What's God going to do? He says that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us. He's actually referring to and quoting there Psalm 106, which is about the Exodus. I mean, this is tremendous. Here's a Jewish man, a priest nonetheless. He's daring to indicate that the birth of a child is a bigger act of rescue than the Exodus. I mean, it's unheard of. He said this in front of his friends and family who were there to celebrate the naming of John. I mean, his, 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 his uncle, the real conservative talk radio listening to jerk, probably picked up a rock to throw it at him at this point for blaspheming. Like, you do not say that. I mean, the Exodus was an amazing rescue. You don't compare that to a baby. I mean, didn't he see the Prince of Egypt and all that cool stuff? Didn't he see Charlton Heston raise his hands? You can't compare that to a baby. But he does. Why? Because he sees the incredible God behind this birth, a God who makes and fulfills his promises. He says, he's coming to rescue us. It's over. Rejoice. Here's how he says it. Look at me, look at me at verses 72 through 74. It says what? To show the mercy promised to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. Look how specific and real these promises are. See, oh dear flock, this is why we sing songs like, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. Because it's about us. It's about being rescued from sin. You are singing about yourselves being brought into an exodus. A rescue from the slavery of sin and fear. And the birth of John the Baptist is proof that that is happening. Oh, you realize we can serve God without fear right here in America. Maybe things aren't as good as they used to be. Maybe they, they, they are. Maybe your life hasn't turned out as you wish it had. Remember, this was a dark, silent night in Israel until Zechariah spoke. It had been 400 years since any Holy Spirit-inspired prophecy, and we miss this. These words that he speaks here are the first in over 400 years of a prophet now speaking God's word. And that prophecy is hope in the coming Messiah. And so too, as we see that working hope, we should also have our own hope because God's plan is working. Let's look at God's plan working hope now. So starting in verse 76, Zechariah is done describing now. He looks at his boy. He speaks to him directly. He looks at his son and he proclaims, You are the promised messenger. You are the one who will prepare the way for the Messiah. See, why was preparation needed? Because the people were looking for political salvation. They didn't care about sin and all that religious junk. Get rid of the Romans and their taxes, please. They wanted a better economy. They wanted more personal freedom. Does this sound familiar? See, but that's not the kind of salvation God was offering them. So before the Savior came, someone had to get the people ready for the right kind of freedom. 
And so verse 77, look at me, verse 77, tells us that God sent John, why? To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. That's it. He wanted to show me you need rescue, not from Rome. You need rescue from your sins. See, people then and people now, we need to sense our need of being rescued before we seek help. People swimming leisurely in a pool don't typically grab onto a life preserver that's thrown to them, but if you're drowning, you do. And that's what John's calling was, is to help people understand their sin so they would then ask for forgiveness. They didn't know what they needed, and so God in His mercy sent John to show them. Think about that. He didn't come and berate them and be like, why don't you know you're sinful? So let me show you. And so John came and preached repentance. And people responded. And so too, uh, those of you who have been united to Christ by faith, those of you who know Jesus Christ as Lord, we are usually wrong about what we need. We look to our circumstances. God, help me with my job. God, help this project to go well. God, would, would you help me with my money? Help me with my marriage. Then I can be happy. Then I can have peace. No, to have peace, you need peace with God, which comes through the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will find happiness. Or maybe you're a religious type person, and you think, man, if I just clean up this area of my life, then God will accept me and like me, and I can be happy. God will bless me. See, John comes to tell, especially the religious people of Israel, that God doesn't want your better behavior God wants you to see your sin and run to Him for help. See, we need forgiveness for real change in our lives. If you want your life to be different, don't try harder to be good. Repent of your sin and ask God for His grace. That's what John's ministry was about, is getting people ready to see that. Because God offers forgiveness to people like us. Because that's the kind of God He is. Look with me at verse 78. What kind of God is He? This all comes, why? Because of the tender mercy of our God. He shows extreme kindness, we could translate that, to sinners stuck in darkness. He comes and brings us peace. See, that's Zechariah's prophetic birth sermon. And then afterwards, after his sermon, looking back at verse 65 and 66, all the family and all the neighbors, they can tell, hey, the Spirit of the Lord has been here, and it's been a long time, and they are afraid. It's been 400 years. And they hear it, and they all go and tell everybody, prophecy is back, God's moving, God's doing something. And notice what they say, not who is this kid going to be, but they say what? What role will this kid play in all this? See, and that's the question for us. Those of you who are members of Christ's church, Christians, what role are we going to play in God's plan? We are, in a sense, John the Baptist to our culture. We cannot save anyone, but we can call folk to seek forgiveness in the one who can, like he did. And he can save them. We can, especially this time of year, point people to Christ. We must go to those ignorant of Christ, those who are trapped in darkness, who need rescue from their sin. And we must treat them as God does in this text. 
I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but reading through this and studying it, I did not see God come in a very judgmental, mean way. Be like, stop being sinners, you sinners. Right? No. What do we see in this passage? We see words like mercy. We see words like rescue. We see words like tender mercy. We see, we see this picture of God confronting sin with grace and kindness. Oh, dear Christians, let that be us. Let us never point out sin without immediately pointing to the Christ who can forgive sin. I mean, if you're here, whether you know Christ or not, if you're struggling with hope this year, let this be your hope. The power of the gospel can change sinners, which means the power of the gospel can change our world. Let that hope really anchor itself in your heart again this year. Let it be fresh and new this Christmas. Let it flood you with a fearful hope of what the gospel can do. I mean, for non-Christians, if you're here and you're like, you know, I don't know any of this stuff, I'm, this is not for me, just look at me one quick time at verse 75. Notice here, to people who are in fear and afraid, God promises that His people can serve Him fearlessly. He says what? You can serve Him in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. Well, guess what? There is no one who is holy. There is no one who is righteous. The Bible says both those things. So guess what? If you don't know Christ, this verse is a promise. It is a glimpse of what is available to you, of the hope available to you. Because the only way that anybody ever serves our God in holiness and righteousness is because the holy and righteous God of the Bible comes and makes them holy and makes them righteous. No one can change themselves. See, and that's the gospel right there in this verse. Not act better, not do better, not try harder, not do these things and God will love you. Obey this and God will accept you. Be really good. No, that's somebody else who wears red and we talk about it at Christmas, but that's not Christianity. Christianity is God comes to those who can't help themselves. He does see you when you're sleeping. He does know when you're awake. He does know that you've been good or bad. And so he says, accept my grace for goodness sake. That's the gospel. God will accept you based on the work of Christ, not on your work. See, the gospel is that Jesus Christ lives the holy life that God demands of you. Then he died the death that your sin deserves. And his life and death together make you righteous and holy before him. And God offers all of that to you by grace. There's nothing you can do to create that in your own life so just as we end this the question is do you see your guilt before a holy god do you feel that there's something deeply wrong do you want to be right again then look to the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Confess Him as your resurrected Lord who died for you and you can know forgiveness, peace, and hope. And don't wait. Do it today. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we do come before You 
And we confess, Lord, that we are sinners. Every one of us. Your word says there is no one who is righteous. There is no one who seeks after God. You command that we be holy as you are holy and we cannot do it. But Lord, we praise you that in your grace you sent Jesus Christ not to tell us how bad we are, but to change us, to make us holy and righteous by his life, death, and resurrection. Oh, Father, we pray that you would, by your Spirit, show us our guilt and our sin, and then immediately show us Christ. Oh, Lord, would you do your work of salvation that we might know more of Christ and confess him as Lord and mean it. We pray all this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand? Let's respond to God's word and prepare ourselves for communion by singing together. be seated and therein in that second verse uh, is the gospel while we were under God's righteous frown justly deserving his displeasure Christ set aside everything that was rightly his and humbled himself and became obedient to death even the cruel and torturous and humiliating death on a cross. And so therein lies the gospel. And, and here is this thing that we do, that he's commanded us to do. And it is so strange. And if you're coming this morning and, and you have lost the strangeness about it, I, I hope that you can recover that. That we would come and that we would be somehow united to Christ by faith. That somehow, supernaturally, he's present here with us in this moment to feed us and to nourish us, to give us hope when we so desperately need it, to nourish our faith when it is teetering at times. This is a strange and a wonderful thing that he's given us to do. And so as we approach this table, I want to, uh, to address three groups of people. I, I want to, first of all, 
give some of you permission to not do this with us. That's okay. We 